You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey guys, it's Ken Davenport. Listen, as of the release of this podcast, there are only 18 performances of Spring Awakening left. 18 and that's it. It goes away forever. So if you haven't seen it, get your tickets now. In fact, listen, if you haven't seen it, drop me an email. I can get your full price tickets anytime you want. That was a little producer humor. Okay, on to the podcast. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. Now, if you listened to Lynn Aaron's podcast from a few weeks ago, then you heard her impassioned plea for our industry to put more of a spotlight on the women that make Broadway work. And when Lynn Aaron talks, I listen. So I immediately reached out to a woman who I believe has had one of the most significant impacts on our industry in the past decade. And that woman is our guest today. A big welcome to Tony Award-winning director, Diane Paulus. Welcome, Diane. Welcome. Diane burst onto the Broadway scene with her in-the-park revival of hair that transferred to a proscenium house, despite so many people saying it couldn't make the jump, and then it, she knocked it out of the park there. Followed that up with the acclaimed revivals of Porgy and Bess and Pippin, and get this, all three of those shows won the Tony Award for Best Revival. That's three for three. Directed last season's Finding Neverland and is about to go into rehearsals for the new Sarah Bareilles musical Waitress. And during all of this, she became the artistic director for Boston's ART, which is quickly becoming the first choice for out-of-town tryouts for all of us commercial producers. Her phone rings a lot these days, I'm sure. She's the it woman of Broadway directors, and I'm thrilled she has taken the time out of her schedule to hang with us. So, Diane, let's start with the simple one. How did you get started as a director? Well, I actually trained as an actor. Um, I went to... Uh, Harvard undergrad and, and at that point thought I would pursue a career in politics. I grew up in New York City and I always had this dream of being the mayor of New York. I think I, I, I looked at New York City in the 1970s and I thought it didn't make sense to me that it couldn't be um, a better place to live. Uh, I was very idealistic and I did a lot of um, political work in high school, um, I marched for ERA, nuclear disarmament. I lobbied for Planned Parenthood. So I, I was sort of on a political, uh, you know, uh, path. Um, and then my freshman summer, after my first year of college, I, I interned for Ruth Messenger, this councilwoman for the Upper West Side at the time. And I think I, I, I had this light bulb moment, which we all look for in our lives, where I realized I could do this. I, I could discipline myself and maybe pursue politics. Um, but it wasn't what made my my heart tick. And um, I just thought about what would I be happy to do and pull an all-nighter for her. I guess I was at Harvard <laughs> working very hard as a student. And again, I, I, I was, a, you know, I, I knew how to do that, but it, it couldn't compare to being in a rehearsal room. 
So when I graduated uh, college, I had spent two summers at Williamstown. So I, I moved from interning for uh, the city council to being an apprentice and in the Act One company at Williamstown. And those were other seminal moments where I really thought, oh, okay, you know, because when you're an apprentice, you're painting sets all night long and, you know, you're running around uh, in the box office. I, I even taught aerobics to Mary Tyler Moore because I happened to be in the management office and someone turned to me and said, who can teach aerobics? And I said, I can. So anyway, I, 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 I had that immersive experience of, you know, 24-7 theater. Um, and I, I graduated college and... Actually, I was going to drive. I had my brother's car. I was going to drive to Alaska. I had this whole vision. Randy and I, my now husband, we were going to drive to Alaska and sort of see America. And the car broke down. And I remember coming to New York and I, uh, at the last second, got into a summer acting program here. And that sort of triggered this pursuit of acting, um, which uh, led to the New Actors Workshop, where I went to school, which was founded by Mike Nichols. Paul Sills and George Morrison. Sadly, all three of those amazing um, artists and teachers are now passed away. Um, but I did two years acting training. And then really, I started directing when I finished that program. And we were all out of work actors waiting for a job. And um, I feel like you can would relate to this. I was like, got to do something about this, got to make the theater happen. And I, the first play I directed was uh, Schnitzler's La Ronde. You know, basically because it's a, a form of a play and scenes, you know, two-person scenes. So I acted in one of the scenes and I also directed all my other classmates in the other scenes. And we did it in, in the classroom at New Actors Workshop. I asked if I could use the classroom after hours. And it's very funny when I look back. Um, I made it into like a Viennese cafe with little tables and it was clip lights and we would make hot chocolate. It was sort of my first foray into breaking the fourth wall. And that's how I started. I, I, the next play I directed was Twelfth Night, and I did it in an outdoor community garden on West 89th Street between Amsterdam and Columbus because it was one of those plots of land that the community take over when no one else will uh, you know, claim it and everybody starts planting their flowers. And before you know it, it's this gorgeous garden. And I walked by one day and I looked at it and I thought, that's a perfect little theater. So I walked in and said, you know, does anyone do any performance here? And they said, oh, no, 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 we just... We just garden. But if you'd want to, you'd have to talk to the board and they meet, you know, the first Monday of every month in the lobby of that building over there. So I went over and I said, you know, how about doing outdoor Shakespeare? Joe Papp was sort of an icon of mine. I said, you know, we, we do free Shakespeare, you know, for the community here. And they said, great, fine, whatever. You know, only one rule. You cannot stop anybody from gardening. You know, you, you can use the space, but gardening comes first. So I remember thinking, okay, I can take that all. And, you know, if someone puts down their shovel and watches the play, maybe I'm doing something right. Um, and that's how I started. It was, you know, the actors changed in the Claremont Horse Stables, which was right next to that garden. No longer there, but uh, everybody worked for free. So I was directing really for my acting training, just, you know, out of this, um, out of this desire to just take what I had learned, use my classmates who we had, you know, we, we, we had bonded and we had made all this great work together in school. And then everybody just was waiting for the phone to ring. I mean, it was, it was in the age, this is the early nineties of, you know, services. People don't even remember probably what those were, but you, as a young actor, you'd get a telephone number 
Um, and you'd call your service to see, you know, any messages. It was like totally humiliating, you know, and it was sort of your testing your willpower. How often would you call? Cause you know, I think they'd call you if you actually got an audition, but you were also allowed to check in. So, you know, you'd, you'd go a couple hours and then call in and they'd say, no, no messages. And I just found it completely, you know, uh, what's the word? Just nonsensical that as young people who loved the theater and who had trained and who had made, you know, great work under the tutelage of these amazing teachers like Paul Sills and, and Mike Nichols, and there we were just waiting for the phone to ring. It didn't make sense to me, so that's how I started directing. It's so funny. People ask me how they should start producing all the time, and I say, do a Shakespeare reading series in your dorm room. That's producing. Just get started. Yeah. Do something. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I, I love your Mary Tyler Moore aerobic story. I drove Adrian Zemed's golf cart, golf clubs to Boston. That was my bay. Like, I'll do it. I'll do anything <laughs> at this point just to, to be around it. So it's interesting to see how your immersive theater instincts started with the very first show that you did uh, with Laurent and then even The Twelfth Night. And then, of course, The Donkey Show. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? So tell me a little bit about the beginning of that, which was sure. the first big immersive, I think, start of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Well, that, um, so that, you know, flash forward, uh, I finished acting school, actually had a whole five years in Wisconsin, of all places, where I did theater with a company there that I founded because Paul Sills was my mentor and he had a farm there. And after about five years, I realized, you know, I I wanted more training as director. Everything I was doing was from the actor's perspective. So I was kind of hitting a wall and feeling like I I wanted more um, input as a director. So I applied to Columbia to the master's program and and got in there and went to train as a director under, uh, two, you know, phenomenal teachers who really have influenced my directing life. That's uh, Anne Bogart and Andre Sermon. Couldn't be more different from one another, but I owe everything to the two of them. Um, And Donkey Show came um, at the end of my three years at grad school. And actually, I'll I'll never forget it. Um, You know, it was another sort of seminal turning point where I was about to finish Columbia. And I remember saying to Anne... Um, you know, what should I do? Should I apply for this fellowship program? Should I go do this? You know, there were all these sort of opportunities for young directors, like the things you should do. And I said, or, you know, Randy, who again, my now husband and I were, you know, had been making shows together actually in Wisconsin in those interim years. And, and I said, you know, Randy has this idea for this play and I could, you know, work on that this summer. And Anne said, she, she actually did something. She took a finger, she pointed to my heart and touched my heart. And she said, follow your heart and, you know, therein will lie all your riches. You know, and I'll, I'll never forget that. And so, of course, uh, what did I do? I, I didn't do any of those things you should do. And um, Randy and I got some of the actors from Columbia School of the Arts grad program, you know, our, our friends, my friends who I directed in all these scenes during grad school. And when we started, it was just these two women, Anna Wilson and Rachel Murray, these two actresses. And Randy said, um, let's do this adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream set in a 1970s disco. Cause he had this epiphany actually having acted as, um, Peter Quince in a really, uh, you know, very traditional version of Midsummer Night's Dream in Wisconsin. 
and was so frustrated. They didn't have enough actors, so he did the role. And he would, like, sit backstage, and it was your typical cuddly production where, you know, Bottom is so cute, and Titania's putting flowers in the ass's ears, and it's all very funny and sweet. And he's like, this is wrong. This is bestiality. Does no one see the cruelty in this play? So he had this obsession, and... um you know, I, I'm talking about Randy because we, we dated in high school and we went to Studio 54. That was part of kind of our you know experience together. So he had this idea of mashing up Midsummer Night's Dream, setting the kind of enchanted Athenian woods as the dance floor of Studio 54, where you could run away and be anyone you wanted to be, like the lovers run to the Athenian woods, you know, and, and they're fairies and, you know, there's magic dust that gets you high and all that. So um, I mentioned Columbia because we created it in the lobby of Dodge Hall, which is the arts building on the Columbia campus, only because our my ID still swiped. I mean, it was that ghetto. And we, we'd show up in the lobby, um, this like marble lobby, and we'd have a boom box. And we started rehearsing it, and it was kind of pre-internet. And Randy was interested in all these disco songs. So um, we would get like the... the the cheesy disco compilations from the love drug stores back then. And we would have the, you know, Rachel and Anna, we were working with, they would transcribe all the lyrics because this was before you could just get any lyric you wanted off the internet. And at first he was like doing a study of disco songs because he thought he'd kind of write his own. And it's like, why would I write my own? These, these are masterpieces. So, um, you know, he created a structure where every disco song kind of was chosen to serve the plot point. And the convention was that these were lovers on the dance floor and a song would come on that the DJ was playing and they'd sing along to it because it was capturing exactly what they were feeling. Like Thelma Houston's Don't Leave Me This Way. That was Helena, you know, singing to Demetrius, Don't Leave Me This Way. I can't survive without your love. Um, and so uh, we made this little show and it's so funny you bring it up because yes, just yesterday, we went down to the Lower East Side. And, and, you know, this is a piece of theater history that I had that feeling yesterday walking on Ludlow Street because it's completely changed. It's all high-end boutiques and restaurants. And I really had that feeling of, oh, my God, a neighborhood can be erased. But I grew up as a young director in those years. I don't even know if they were on your radar even, or you were too uptown on Broadway by then. But, you know, Randy and I did all our work on Ludlow Street at Toto Conada at a place called the Piano Store, House of Candles. It was sort of this hotbed of the off-off Broadway scene. And Aaron Bell, who was a little impresario of that neighborhood, had taken over the space. Um, it's still there, and if you go there, on it's on it's on Ludlow between Stanton and Rivington. It says pianos outside. It's now a club, like a fancy little or a restaurant. But it was a piano store, which was a front for a speakeasy. So on the back of this, you know, little room of, you know, storefront was this small little club with like a balcony. I mean, small, like could fit a hundred people. And so we asked Aaron if we could do the donkey show there. And he gave us the midnight slot. And he was doing all sorts of little plays, you know, that were like folding chairs and everybody would do their downtown show for like 50 people. So the first thing we did is we took all the chairs, we stuck them in the basement. So it would be like an empty space, like a little dance floor. And then Randy borrowed the red robes from the restaurant across the street. I mean, it's so funny that he now like owns the box, but you know, he, he, took the red ropes and would put them outside the piano store and stand on the street. And we would do the show at midnight. We'd put the boom box in the window and blast disco music. 
and the actors would go change at the coffee shop up the block, the pink pony, you know, to Tanya in her like pasties and hot, you know, high thigh high leather boots and she would walk down Ludlow Street and you know the cop cars would circle around and we'd make a scene on the street and Randy would hawk every offer money back guarantee two for one ladies night you know we would line the people up on the street and then eventually we took the actors out on the street and we developed like the street version you know the portion of the donkey show and we did this every Friday and Saturday night at midnight for, I don't know, like six months. And none of the actors got paid. Everybody took their costumes home in a shoebox. We had a little piece of white linoleum floor that we would tape down with duct tape and, you know, flash colored lights on it to make it look like, you know, the disco dance floor in a Saturday Night Fever. And it was it's still when you could smoke in New York. So people would come and they would smoke in this teeny little theater. And, you know, ashes would be all over the dance floor. I mean, throw glitter. And at the end, at like 3 o'clock in the morning, the actors would scoop up the scoop up the glitter. This is how real it got. And they would come to me and they'd ask me, like, Diane, can, is this glitter still good? And we'd, like, separate it and put it in baggies for the next week. So that's how we did it. But it was like a religion. I mean, I always tell the story because it would never have happened if we didn't do it you know, out of that passion for the show. And here's the truth. We were doing another show called Frankenweir. It was like this Victorian adaptation of the Frankenstein story. We were doing that at 10. And then at midnight, we do Donkey Show and, and this Frankenweir show, which was very clever and funny. You know, that got like the review. I can't remember in the Village Voice or it got a pick and time out. You know, we weren't, we, no one had a press agent. You know, we were just underground, underground. So we do that show and like eight people would show up. That was what it was like when you did downtown theater, eight, 10, maybe 15. And then midnight would roll around and it was like 50 people, a hundred people, 150 people. And the internet had just started and we had this um, VIP policy where if you saw the show, you could get on the VIP list and you could come back for free if you brought a paying friend. So it just multiplied. And it was sort of the birth of the internet. And Randy and I would stand at the door and we were amazed because there we were, you know, we had the listings and time out in the village voice for Frank and Wiener. No one was showing up and hundreds of people were coming to the donkey show. And we'd say like, how did you hear about me? They'd say, oh my God, someone emailed my office. They said, you had to see this. It was like word of mouth 101. So we, we did it and we kept doing it. And every three to four months, we'd take the whole cast out to like, you know, hamburgers on Second Avenue and say, you want to keep going, guys? Because, you know, no one's getting paid. We could shut the show. And everybody was working day jobs, but it was like a, it was like a passion thing. Everyone was just felt the power of the show. It was really an instance where no rules, no unions, just actors feeling something is happening and why stop it? Right. Which drives me crazy and runs, you know, when like, you know, the run is over, the theater has to kick you out because the next show's coming in or the union or this or that. And this was just so, you know, wild west. So breaking every rule and every actor said, no, I want to keep doing it. And lo and behold, um, we actually moved the show to the pyramid club on Avenue A and we did it Thursday nights for a while and like eight or nine months into doing this, Jordan Roth shows up, you know, and, and comes and sees it and says, wow, this is something. And he was first starting to figure out like what he wanted to do. You know, he was maybe going to be a photographer, he was maybe do acting. He hadn't become the producer he is today. And he said, I think I want to help you move this. 
And, you know, to make a long story short, we, we sat in a restaurant with the yellow pages. I don't know if Jordan gave this detail, but we literally, I'll never forget, we were looking at the age of the yellow pages and we flipped to like nightclubs and we'd like look at clubs and we'd get in taxis and just go around to scout clubs. And we found this club on 21st Street, um, the Flamingo, and um, it was the right architecture, the right vibe. And uh, the club owner had been a bodyguard for Hal Prince. Uh, he had been involved with the Copacabana, so he loved the idea of a nightclub as a place of theater. So he gave us our home there, and we opened the show there. I love this idea that you there were really no rules for you downtown, of course. You could do whatever you want. The actors could work for free. You could change across the street. And then, of course, you make this incredible transition to Broadway where there is nothing but rules. Um, in fact, Randy Weiner, your husband, who I know very well, obviously, I remember him saying to me once, like, my wife is such an artist. And it was <laughs> it was half compliment, of course, and half like she just wants to do these things that we that have no rules. And, of course, to make it in this business, quote, unquote, there are a ton of rules. How did you make that transition? Now, hair, of course, was the first, which was a bit immersive, again, yeah. if you will, in the park. And then going over, uh, of course, to the what was the Martin Beck at the time, or had it been reading it was, Hirschfeld? It was the Hirschfeld by then. How was that transition for you to all of a sudden have everyone saying, oh, no, Diane, you can't do it this way. You can't do it this way. You know, I think I think hair was sort of a symbolic first, you know, big musical for me uh, because it's all about breaking rules. And I, you know, I I had grown up on that music. I had never actually seen a production of hair, but I saw the movie, and it was just in my DNA. I think I I always felt I missed my decade. I always wished I had grown up in the '60s. I had this whole kind of like romanticization of what it would have been like to be part of the you know youth culture at that time. And, uh, you know, I think we did it, you know, Oscar approached me, Oscar Eustace, we did it as a concert the very first time. And he gave me, um, nine days to do it. So it was already kind of non-traditionally, you know, it wasn't like, here's your musical and here's your four weeks of rehearsal and your tech. It was like, you have nine days and it's this 40th anniversary and, you know, let's do it in the park and, um, you know, what could you do? And I think that kind of gauntlet, that challenge was, was critical to the inception of that, of that production. Because I actually said to him, I said, you know, look, you can't do like a concert of hair and not have a hair. Like you can't not have the clothes and the hair. I mean, it will just be stupid. Like it won't make sense. And I said, we have to get the casting right. So, um, you know, we did this mega search and we found this extraordinary cast, a lot through open call, a lot of non-equity people that all went on, all went on to Broadway. Uh, I partnered with Carol Armitage, you know, because she told me she grew up in like Kansas and would take rugs and cup holes in them and make them into ponchos and loved hair too. You know, we had this like shared generational, you know, thing, the hippie thing. So we were kind of breaking rules. You know, I don't even know what contract we were on. It had to have been some, you know, non-traditional contract to do a, because we staged it. We had costumes, you know, we even had some wigs, but we did it in nine days. And, uh, it, it was like the right moment for that show. And so, and, and I also said to Oscar, cause I had read about the history of hair, you know, how it had started downtown, went to the, at the public, had gone to the cheetah nightclub. Like I had followed the whole history of the show and how they got audience to dance on the stage. And I said, 
I think the other thing I said to Oscar, we have to have like hair in the costumes and we have to let the audience dance on the stage. I said, that's just such a part of the lore. You know, and I got to work closely with Jim Rado and Galt McDermott, you know, uh, Jerry Redney had passed. And so they would describe to me everything about, you know, the history of hair and, the, you know, all the anecdotes and stories, especially Jim, you know, he was around a lot. And, and he told me about the dancing on stage. And I think, you know, there was dancing, but not like what happened at the Delacorte. And I'll never forget that first night when um, the show ended and I was standing in the back of the Delacorte with Oscar. I'm like, let's see what happens. Right. So the, the show ended and we do, we do like the reprise of let the sunshine in and the, the actress kind of reached out and then like one, cause you think no one's going to go on stage. People are too embarrassed. One, two, fifty, a hundred. I mean, there must have been like three hundred people. And I remember the production managers, you know, ran to look in the bowels underneath the Delacour because all of a sudden there was a panic that, like, the the you know the the stage and the ground was not like you know prepared for three hundred people like jumping and dancing. So that was like a real rule breaker. And I remember when we went to Broadway, I said, fine, we can take this show to Broadway, but we must allow people to dance on stage. And of course, you would think, how is that possible? Union, rules, liability, how do the audience get on stage? You know, Jordan, who was running to Jamson, you know, understood that. Paul Libin, you know, when we moved into the Hirschfeld, he said, tear this theater up. That's my one, you know, my one, uh, you know, request. And amazingly enough, when we did our first national tour, I also said, we have to have the dancing on stage. So part of the tech rider that went out with that national tour was that the audience could come on stage. And, you know, some auditoriums across the country have that built in. Other times we'd have to put in stairs. And I'm telling you, it happened in every venue across America. We also had in the tech rider that the actors come out in the audience and, you know, step on the, on the seats. You know, so it was... It was an encouraging experience of like, you think you can't make something happen. And yet maybe there's some wiggle room there, right? Even in the biggest of establishments to kind of, you know, break some boundaries. So let's talk about this trilogy of revivals that you've done now. Uh, Hair, Porgy and Bass, Pippin. Now, for me, all three of those things have one thing in common, which was when I heard they were coming, if you just told me the title, I would have said, you know what? I'm not so sure I need to see that. Yet every single one of those productions I saw and I loved because of your perspective on it. How do you find your way into these to make them so fresh and new and give someone like me who's seen us 17 productions of each one of those shows? Mm -hmm. How do you make me feel like I'm seeing it for the first time? What's the process? Mm. Well, I think, you know, those productions were very carefully uh, matched for me. You know, I, I, I think I've been asked to do many revivals and I will pass on them because I don't have a feeling for them. Um, as I've said, you know, hair was, I grew up with hair. So it was like a dream come true to sort of give an audience an experience of hair that in a way I wanted to have. I mean, I think that's how I go about it. Is, is there a potential in the show that I can viscerally, emotionally connect to that I want to live inside? Um, Porky and Bess, I didn't know as well. I, I, I more or less knew it from this production at, at City Opera I had seen. And I remember seeing it and thinking, okay, this is an opera with a lot of hits, like a lot of hit songs. And I remember weeping because it's so emotionally powerful. I'm thinking, you know, maybe one day I'll be asked to direct this opera. Um, and, and working on Porgy and Bess was a whole immersion into the history of that work. 
you know, the creation of it uh, and also the production history of it and how complicated that was. That was, it, it was such a larger undertaking just historically or, you know, looking at American culture and social history, hair as well. Um, when I, when I finished directing hair, I did ask myself like, this is fun. What would I want to do next? And Pippin was next on the list. Um, because I had grown up with Pippin in the seventies. I was, you know, I grew up in New York City. I saw Pippin three times when I was like eight and nine and uh, I hadn't looked at the script ever, but I just remembered something like visceral and powerful and seductive and theatrical about Pippin. And I had loved the score. Um, but the rights were held up with some other ventures in London. So, you know, Porky and Bess came along. That was a little detour for a couple of years. And then I finally got to Pippin. But all three musicals, um, you know, they, they couldn't be more different. But when I look at all three, they all have to do um, with community. You know, they're all, you know, Hare is about a tribe. Porgy and Bess is about Catfish Row. Pippin is about this troop of players. And in each case, uh, you know, each project was this incredible undertaking uh, of casting this sublime ensemble and giving every ensemble member a purpose and a life and a creativity on stage, you know, for different reasons. Um, but I think that... That was my way in, and they all had, you know, maybe Pippin is the one people say, well, like, what what did she see in Pippin? Because Pippin is thought of as, you know, you've done it at your summer camp, and, it, you know, the book of Pippin. I had so many people say, really, Pippin? In fact, it's a very funny story. Peter Dubois, who's a dear friend, when we first got jobs as artistic directors in Boston, he at the Huntington and I was at ART, this was 2008, he took me out to breakfast, and we were really talking about how we wanted a reach audience. Like, both of us were going to, like, break down Boston and reach audience. And then he looked and he said, you know, that's not, you know, we're not going to pander. It's like, it's not like I'm going to do Pippin at the Huntington. And of course, I remember sitting at the breakfast table thinking, well, I'd like to do Pippin. But that's because I think I, I saw something in Pippin. And when I actually looked at the script, I was like, oh, my God, this is like a medieval morality play. You know, when you really look at what Fosse did with it and how dark it was and, you know, the story that we could potentially, um, you know, put into kind of relief, you know, of, of, of kind of a, a trial by fire, literally, of life. So I think, you know, all three musicals, I was very interested in what they were in their original time, right? In the 60s for Hare, you know, in 1972, or in the 70s, early 70s for Pippin, you know, coming out of the horror of the Vietnam War, sort of Hare was Summer of Love, like the beginning of the end, and Pippin was kind of after all that. And of course, Porgy and Bess, this like radical work by all these white guys writing about black people, you know, in the 20s and 30s, and all that craziness that came as a result of that work over the course of the century. I, I really wanted to understand what made them tick in their time, and how could I recreate that experience for our audience today? which is not about replicating it. It's about finding out what was the visceral experience. I'm sort of a, obsessed about that. You know, like I, I read about the premiere of Marriage of Figaro, the Mozart opera, you know, and, and you read about how people stayed online like all night long to get in. And there was like basically a stampede because people were so eager to be at the show that they pressed each other and like someone almost died because they got squished to death at like the premiere of this opera, you know, and that there were like eight encores to the point that Joseph II the next day banned encores because he wasn't going to tolerate, you know, all that repetition. But, you know, that kind of idea that, you know, Marriage of Figaro could feel like a rock concert in itself. 
you know, how do you do that? You go to see Marriage Figaro today, and it is the completely most removed thing from that experience. So, you know, that's my interest. How do you take what was, you know, what was alive then and make it alive now? So you go from these revivals now, and now you're on to new musicals. So last year, Finding Neverland, brand spanking new and a mammoth of a show. And of course, Waitress this, this coming season. Do you have a preference for doing something new or finding the life in something old? You know, new musicals are the hardest thing on the planet. That's, that's what I'm going to say. As hard as a revival is, you know, at least you're really focused on execution. I mean, actually, every revival I did, I worked with the authors, and in this case of Porgy and Bess with the estate, on crafting the revival, you know, a revival kind of production script. But you're, you're, you're not questioning, like, is the story working or do we need a new opening to act two or, you know, you're not questioning the actual um, architecture of the piece. And what's so hard in a new musical is you have to work as hard on the execution of it. And then while you're putting all that time and effort into the execution of it, you have to kind of stand back and say, okay, do we even have the book right? Do we even have the right song here? So you've got to, like, let go, back up maybe, you know, drop a song or rewrite the structure, rewrite scenes. So it's, it's kind of like a revival on steroids. I mean, it's just so, so hard. Um, but in many ways, like perhaps more rewarding because you're creating something new, you know, um, when you get it right, there's nothing like it because, uh, you know, I, I do, I do think there's something for an audience when they come to see something new, you know, a story being kind of unveiled for the first time. Now, Finding Neverland, you came on later into the process because there was a London production, et cetera, and uh, Waitress, you've been around mm -hmm. the process since the beginning. Do you like to get involved with new musicals from the get-go, or do you like them to be delivered to you? Well, oh, here's the script, here's the songs, and right. now we're ready for you to come in and put up a reading for us. Yeah, you know, I, in my experience, it's always been the former. You know, that, that, that writers and composers want a director involved pretty early to help shape the piece. Um, and in the case of Finding Neverland, there had been another version of it. But when I was brought in early on in my time with the show, we basically started all over with Gary Barlow and Elliot Kennedy and James Graham. So it was a completely new scoring book. So it really was starting from scratch. Um, and we went back to the film. In the case of both Finding Neverland and Waitress, the source material was the film films, um, you know, the Johnny Depp, Kate Winslet film, and also in Waitress's case, this, you know, fabulous independent film by Adrian Shelley. So, uh, that's like another challenge because you're doing an adaptation, you know, it's not quite original, original from scratch. And what's hard in that case is, you know, you want to follow the film, but you actually can't follow the film. Like it's, you want to follow what's good about the film, but the, in both cases, the more I worked on the shows and the more I'm working on Waitress, the liberation theatrically comes when you say, well, we're not going to do that like they do in the film. We're going to actually do something completely different. You know, the, 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 if you're slavish to the film, it's very, very hard to make it pop as theatrically as, as a show needs to. 
in, in Finding Neverland, the, the best example of that was, I remember early on, if you've seen the film, it's, you know, quiet, beautiful period film. And at the very end, when Kate Winslet is uh, Sylvia Llewellyn-Davis, she's dying and she sees the little play in her living room. She gets up and, like, she walks through her, her doors, her window doors, and she walks into this incredible Neverland. And it's Technicolor in the movie and they're creatures. And, you know, it's like a Bosch painting. And I remember early on thinking, okay, well, that's it. Like, that's the, the meta-theatrical moment when we actually get to go to Neverland. So Scott Pasley, the designer I worked with, you know, we were thinking about the whole design based on that, you know, something very staid and simple that would then explode into something fantastical at this, like, 11th hour. And then we finally realized, like, I think one day I was like, that's exactly why we can't do that, because we'll never achieve it as well as the film. And um, Mia Michaels, who came on board as our choreographer, sent me this YouTube video one day of Daniel Wilkes' work, who's the air sculpturist that we... And I had used his work in my Cirque du Soleil show, I'm a Luna. And Daniel had emailed me flukily, like, that day, saying, you know, I'm thinking of doing more theater, and if you want to see what I have up my sleeve, you know, I'd love to show you some of my other things. And Mia, the same day, sent me a video, said, have you ever, have you ever seen this? You know, a little YouTube video of, like, fabric blowing in the wind. I was like, okay, this is weird. That's Daniel. I know him. I've worked with him. And he just emailed me. Um, and then we went out to his warehouse in Brooklyn. And, you know, he had the setup of fans. And he was throwing everything into this air sculpture wind, you know, styrofoam peanuts. And he lit fire. And then he threw this bag of glitter in the, in the wind thing. And I was like, oh, my God. We were like, all our breath was taken. We were like, that's it. That's it. I had my assistant Mia like walk through it and I was like walk through it walk through it put your hands in the air and we have this little video of her and it was freezing we were like in parkas in his garage in Brooklyn and we we're like okay that is Neverland I mean it was really and it couldn't be more removed from that literal representation you know and then we hit it from Harvey for like months. I'm like, don't show it to Harvey. He's going to can it if he doesn't understand it. And then finally, you know, I showed him the video. I was like, I know this is not going to seem what you think it should be, but I think this could be pretty incredible. Um, so you have to find, you can't find the like one-to-one -one mapping. You have to find like the theatrical equivalent of what's in the film. So it's a, it's a, it's kind of like a revival because you're looking at a source and, you know, kind of dealing with the source, but trying to make it present in a different way. But it's a little harder, I find, when the source is newly created in the last decade. It's easy to take 12 yes. years of it's a nice dream hundreds of years ago. No, no, completely. Yeah, also, you know, the scrutiny is different, to be, you know, honest. It's, you know, when a revival happens, you know, people aren't really looking at, you know, is this story worthy? You're, you're, you're saying it's worthy by virtue of reviving it. But when you do a new musical, it's sort of like, well, what's the point of the story? Like, you know, why should you have even taken on this story? Um, so there's something about a new musical that um, you've got to get so many things right, you know, to really to really pass. <laughs> um, so it's it's much more challenging, but uh, in the end, I think really rewarding. In the midst of all this work, you take on the job of being the artistic director of ART. Uh, what's been the biggest surprise of you being an artistic director of a regional theater like that? I think the biggest surprise um, was how how pliable, actually, ultimately, a regional theater could be. And and I say ultimately because I've been there now eight years, and in the early years it was tough. 
you know, to, to change the course of the ship, you know, in any institution, especially an institution that's been run by kind of a leadership over many, many, many years, there are, there are rules. Like we talk about, you know, breaking rules. You have rules on Broadway, you have rules in regional theater, you know, things, the way things are supposed to be done. Um, but ART had this mission, which I'll never forget reading when I was head on for the job. I was like, what's the mission? Because I know when you work for a not-for-profit, it's all about the mission, right? You've got to live and die by the mission. And the mission in writing was, you know, the ART is dedicated to expanding the boundaries of theater. I thought, oh my God, like that is a mission I could get behind because that's what I had been doing, whether it was donkey show or hair. It was like, how do you take theater and push it? push it, push what we think is theater. If that is this regional theater's institutional mission, there's a lot of permission there for experimentation because it's kind of, you know, that's in the, in the, in the words of the mission. And, and part of what I, I wouldn't say, so, so is it surprising? Maybe not surprising because there it was, you know, the, 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 the board of the ART and the, the artistic leadership had agreed on that mission. So in the DNA of the ART, you know, that impulse was obviously present. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, what was surprising was actually, um, here's a way of saying what was surprising about how pliable it was. The audience was really, really eager to embrace a new path. And frankly, so were the critics in the Boston area. Of course, you know, there are always people who are going to write whatever they want to write. And, you know, um, there were reporters that wanted to, you know, question the change that was happening, but the audience was a full partner. I mean, they were really ready to go on the ride. I mean, I opened my first season with donkey show, you know, and I remember thinking like the day before we opened, I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, why did we put this on the subscription? This should have been like the wild add on, like, am I nuts? And then I'll never forget debriefing after the first performance. And they were like, you know, um, a, a couple of audience members who had brought these silver flags, which is a big part of like gay disco culture. So they had shown up with their flags. And I was like, who are the flag guys? You know, because how do they know? And we've tracked it down. And they're like, subscribers, you know, they had been waiting for that kind of a show. Um, it, it was harder for the staff and the institutional kind of like, you know, habits to change on the inside, but on the outside, the change happened really, really, uh, within one year because the work proved it. You know, I was really determined not to just get up there and proselytize about theater can be this and theater can be that, but like, you got to show it. And even my board members who, who were really eager to support me, they would say things like, well, let's wait and see. You know, it was like, oh my God, I get these emails. Like, we, well, we'll see, you know. And they were getting tours of like Sleep No More and this abandoned, uh, you know, elementary school in Brookline, you know, walking through rooms with just pieces of paper taped to the wall saying, this is going to be a forest and this is going to be like the insane asylum and this is going to be the witch's room. And, you know, they're like, where are the seats? No seats. Everyone's walking, you know. And of course, so, you know, God bless that board. I mean, they, they approved all that. They were ready to, to, you know, turn our second stage into a nightclub, take on sleep no more, but it was always, you know, well, let's see, let's see how it goes. Um, and I think the proof was in the connection, you know, to the audience, which the ART had frankly lost, you know, everyone knew that, that, that just fundamental transaction was not happening to that theater. People weren't coming. 
there was no um, energy going on in, in the building. And that, for me, I remember taking on the job thinking I was a you know, Harvard student. I saw all of Robert Wilson and Philip Glass and Andre Sarabond, Julie Timor. You know, I saw all their seminal work at ART, Andre Sarabond in the 1980s. You know, Bruce Timor was an idol of mine. I interviewed him with my college thesis in his office, which is now my office. You know, it was... That really rocked my world, seeing all that theater at the ART. So when I heard, okay, ART's not doing well, subscriptions are down, they're pointing to 50% capacity, I remember thinking, what, what is wrong? Like, if the ART can't be flourishing, this avant-garde, cutting-edge theater at Harvard in Boston with all those young people and colleges then that's not just a failure on the part of ART. That's like a case study for the American theater. You know, something, if I could figure out how to reignite that, then maybe it's it's a worthy undertaking for just the field. I mean, that's how I went there. And I was also kind of feeling like I wanted to have a, an official voice at the table as, as a producer. Because when you're a freelance director, you're really not invited, you know, to look at the budget. I think it's changing actually more and more because I think, the world has changed and you know, directors are changing, but that idea of like the director is just going to be irresponsible. You can't show them the budget. They just want to do the art. Um, that made me crazy because I grew up on the Lower East Side, you know, paying for everything with a penny, you know, out of a, you know, out of a little kitty of envelope of cash. So my whole experience of making art had to do with like, you know, the business of it. But that's not. You know, that's not what regional theater was founded on. You know, regional theater was founded on its art. The public doesn't know they want it. They won't buy tickets for it, so you have to subsidize it. You know, the public will never pay. You could never commercially pay. public could never subsidize it by ticket sales, right? You've got to, like, support it. And, you know, God knows philanthropy for the arts is necessary. It's still necessary at the ART, no matter how much we sell to, like, 98% capacity these days. We absolutely rely on the philanthropy. But the philanthropy that we need, I always say, is about R&D. It's about R&D. And I think people in the arts don't appreciate, you know, I have a lot of entrepreneurs on my board. And, you know, any big successful innovation, right, invention, big business, big buck success comes from many, many, many failures. You know, you've got to do R&D on things. And you've got to, you know, try, 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 maybe abort certain projects. Things come, they go. If you don't do that R&D, you don't have the chance at the innovation. And that needs subsidy. So, you know, the philanthropy is really important. I always think about the, and use the comparison to the pharmaceutical industry, about how much money they will pay in R&D to come up with a drug that changes the world. Yeah, exactly. Right? And we have to dedicate that kind of resources. Uh, Okay, so last question, which we call my genie question, which I ask all of my guests. So I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to your door, knocks on your door and says, Diane, you've done such amazing work. You've made these three revivals that could have seemed very dusty, brand new again to whole new audiences. You've gotten audiences excited to participate in the experience of going to the theater again, whether it's your subscribers at ART feeling like they want to belong as a part of the donkey show, or whether it's the hair audiences at the Delacorte. I'm going to grant you one wish. One wish what is the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway 
that makes you so angry you can't sleep at night. You're a very passionate person. Uh-oh, <laughs> oh, here my we go. God, okay. There's a long list. We'll take yeah, a 15-minute no, no. break here. No, I'm thinking. Uh, All right. So the one thing that gets you so mad, what I love about you is how passionate you are about your art as well as the business of the theater. The one thing you'd want this genie to change that you could wish Okay, about. I'll tell you what I'd want to change. Um, I, I wish the brand of Broadway could be expanded and not simply confined to the X number of theaters that are part of that landscape. You know, for me, it doesn't make sense if you look at the innovation in other art forms, you know, the Netflix, the HBO, you know, just cable television. I mean, every form, the Internet, YouTube, every form allows for a development of venue, if we call it, let's call it venue, right? And on Broadway, it, it, it doesn't change because it's, it's just defined by an X number of theaters. So there is something valuable about the Broadway brand, right? We know that. That's what people want to come and see. So, you know, it's not like you can just do a show over here, you know, on whatever, 20th Street and 5th Avenue or, you know, in an auditorium and call it Broadway. You can't. Or you can, but if it's not called Broadway, you're not going to have access to that brand, that audience. So I, I, I think for, for Broadway to stay as vibrant as we all want it to stay, the venues have to be opened up and the architecture of the venues have to change because we're also stuck living not only with the set number of theaters, but also the architecture, which is frankly very 19th century. So, you know, when you think about the next generation of audience that wants to experience theater in new ways, there's just a limitation. I mean, yeah, you can take a part of the theater and rip out all the seats and, you know, be the one that does that. Um, and maybe more and more will that happen, you know, will happen. And look, that's not to say there isn't an audience. Clearly there's an audience for the shows that are in those how many theaters are there? You'll know that fact. 41. 41 with now. The with the Hudson. Theater. Exactly. So I should say one theater's been added. You know, there's definitely an audience for those 41 theaters that likes to come and sit in those theaters. But I just think for the vibrancy of the field, it would be thrilling if that brand could be expanded to a new form of architectural venue. I agree. And I think there is an audience today for those 41, but I'm worried about tomorrow's audience mm -hmm. that they are not, as you said, not going to want to sit in a old fashioned theater and watch a play like their grandparents did. Exactly. Well, Diane, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for everything that you do. Everybody go see Waitress opening this spring and we will see you next time. Hey everybody, don't forget, only 18 performances of Spring Awakening left. And if you're listening to this after Monday, January 11th, there are less than that. 18 left. Go see it. You will be sorry if you miss it. I'm gonna be a producer. Look out, Broadway, here I come. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 